Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and we have a tremendous guest for you today, talking to one of the most exciting companies in our space, frankly, uh, a leader in our space, as well as one of the largest fintech companies operating in the wealth management world. So joining me is Steve Houston, who is Managing Director and Head of Investment Products at iCapital. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. Thank you. So, you know, we have a lot of RIAs and family offices in our listenership, in our viewership, who are already using the iCapital platform. Um, but I'm guessing we have a few people who listen who either aren't familiar with iCapital or maybe just aren't aware of the breadth of products and services that you offer. So, could we just start there? You know, who, who is iCapital? Who do you serve? Um, yeah, we're we're an alternative investments marketplace, and we are a B two B business, and we service um, wealth managers um, who represent private clients as LPs on the left, and private asset managers uh, or GPs on the right, and we have um, technology that has automated that that connection between those two parties. And um, we work with about uh, about 250 private asset GPs currently, and tens of thousands of wealth management LPs, well, financial advisors who represent hundreds of thousands of um, individual clients. So the wealth managers and advisors that you work with, are they mainly RIAs, broker-dealers? Is it just kind of a mix, mix of it's everybody? Really a mix. It's really a mix. Um, we, we work very closely um, and partner with the wirehouses where they use our technology. Um, they generally choose their own alternative managers that they want to work with. They have their own research teams. They have their own fund selection and curation processes. And they just use iCapital's technology to automate the bringing together of their private clients into the alternative managers that they choose. But we also work... Um, directly with the RAA community and with the, the regional broker dealer community where they actually come to iCapital's uh, website mm -hmm. and we have a curated list ourselves of managers that we work with um, and it's a living list you know where we're bringing on new managers every month uh, private equity private credit private real estate and hedge funds and so those advisors um you know, we use our, again, our technology and our curation process and our research to help identify managers that they can populate within their client portfolios. Absolutely. And, you know, more and more advisors, obviously placing capital into alternatives, it, you know, grows a little bit year by year. And over the course of a decade, you know, looking back, it's like, wow, this has really grown. But at the same time, so I'm checking my notes here. Um, 
and this is from an economist article that I'll make sure to link in the show notes. Um, but, but the economist said that as of 2020, the global private equity AUM had more than doubled in the past five years to 5.3 trillion. And that was a, as of 2020. So sure, it's a lot more than 5.3 trillion as of 2021, because that was a huge growth year. Yeah. But, but the, the economist says that less than 5% of individual investor assets were allocated to alts at that, yes. at that time. So it's crazy, but we had this huge growth of inflows into alternatives in the past decade. Was that mostly from institutional investors? Yeah. From well, Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, the Pension Endowment Foundation clients, state funds and the like have been actively allocating to private equity for decades, of course, and that's what's driven the the bulk of the you know asset proliferation that you see in the private equity space. Those five trillion dollars uh, that the Economist was referencing. Um, the private client community is um, catching up quickly, though, <laughs> and yeah. it's interesting because the a lot of the private asset managers are now turning their attention to the private client channel because the institutional channel, you know, is very well covered. And, um, you know, there's only so much more that a lot of these um, pensions and endowments and so forth can allocate. Um, so the private client opportunity is tremendous. And the private client world is not new to private equity or private credit and private real estate for that matter. I mean, the wires in particular, were introducing uh, private equity managers and hedge fund managers two or three decades ago. But they, they weren't huge numbers. And the, the amount of financial advisors at the firms that were actually using the products, you know, and deploying them within asset allocated portfolios was pretty small. All of that is changing, you know, right in front of our eyes. And a lot of the reasons it's changing is because of um, how the auto, how we, we and others have automated the process. It used to be a very, very difficult asset class to access. Right. Financial advisors are very busy. They have tons of choices. Um, they don't have a staff that's, you know, focused on filling out, you know, limited partnership agreements and so forth. Right. So it was an industry or a segment that was like ripe for innovation. Mm -hmm. And iCapital and, you know, we're not the only game in town and others have kind of, I think, done a good job at stepping in and taking out a lot of the friction or the pain points in that process. And you know, it's we we often joke. You know, if the hassle factor outweighs the alpha, clients won't do it. <laughs> and no. the hassle factor was kind of outweighing the alpha uh, for many many years. And I think that equation is now turned. Well, you mentioned clients won't do it. I mean, it, advisors won't do it either, right? If you that's right. Yeah. If you take a look at an RIA's typical workday or work week you know, it's not like 99% of the time they're devoted to portfolio construction. That's um, right. There's so many other facets to the job and they just, frankly, I, I don't think they have the time yeah. um, if it's too hard. I think that's right. And, and the, the RIAs in particular as fiduciaries and running, you know, advisory business versus brokerage business, um, a lot of their client investment portfolios are more automated and, you know, they, they change things on the margin. So, you know, there's a demand statement and a, a compelling case to be made to include alternatives in that asset allocation, mm -hmm. but it has to really seamlessly fit in. O otherwise, they just won't do it. Um, 
You know, the other thing that's kind of driving the attention, though, is, you know, the traditional, this is, this is kind of um, <laughs> mentioned so frequently, but the 60-40, you know, portfolio has been challenged. And um, particularly this year, I mean, it's just- I was going to say this year, it's it's been, it's been hammered. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that those two asset classes can have significant drawdowns in the same year. Yeah. It, it might well, not happen every five years, but it happens. Yeah. But, and not to the magnitude that it has this year, though, because the, the bond part of the, the, the 40 part of the 60-40 has just gotten clobbered in a way that it, it wasn't traditionally hit as hard. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it would be a hedge against what was going on in the equity, on the equity bucket, but it's been a double whammy. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of interesting, less correlated investment strategies that the alternatives managers can deliver. And so the advisors are are adapting that more and more and more. And there's also, and the, the technology helps and the automation helps, like all the things that iCapital, you know, offers. Um, there's also been some interesting new products, new chassis, new vehicles that mm-hmm. allow advisors to embrace the product set even more than they had traditionally. And we, we can talk about that certainly. Do you mean like interval funds or just yep. different kinds of yep. wrappers that are more uh, yep. appealing? Are they more appealing to clients or to advisors or to both? Um, to, to, to both. Um, the interval funds and the uh, tender offer funds, you know, you'll see this with private equity, with private credit and private real estate, but they're all, you know, broadly considered like registered 40 act funds. And mm-hmm. with that, they come with an element of liquidity. But importantly, they have other features like they're fully funded. They're not. There's no drawdown or capital call concept. Uh, most of them, if not all of them, are, are 1099s. They don't deliver a K1. Most of them right. are evergreen. So every month, one can allocate towards them. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's so there's like the delivery mechanism of them is mm-hmm. really great, and it's simplified it a lot. Advisors really find that appealing. Um, you know, there's still lots of benefit in the private funds, like what are referenced as three C seven funds that have capital calls. I mean, you you might generally are getting a much higher uh, uh, potential for investment returns in sure. those types of offerings, but they're just a little bit harder to access. And there's more there's more mechanics. There's more going on. There's a there's a complexity tax that you you pay. It's interesting, you know, as a as a podcast host, I come at this from the LP angle, right? So. A lot of times I lack that kind of insider baseball knowledge of the alternative investment industry, but I get to experience it, you know, as the retail investor, the self-directed LP. Um, And my thing, my pain point is, is K1s. I'm at that like awkward spot where I'm like, oh, if I'm getting eight or nine a year, (laughs) like, do I really want another K1, even if an offering is really attractive? Part of me thinks I should just rip the bandaid off. And be willing to get like 20k you know at some point it's just like well who cares it you you know what it's funny you're 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 not that different than a lot of you know larger clients where you there's that tipping point you get one or two or three or four and then it's like well why don't i just go all in um but but it comes with a headache i was on the phone yesterday with my tax accountant and i sent him um another k1 yesterday and he's like really (laughs) you're still coming in (laughs) um so it's as long as you can keep yeah. up with it. But, um, you know, the, the 1099, these evergreen registered, you know, interval and tender offer uh, funds are 
they're really gaining a lot of attention right now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and we, you know, we can, there's different flavors of them and different strategies, but it's, it's really kind of an interesting phenomenon that's right upon us now. So I want to get to the, the pain points and the product segments, sure. but one more question about tailwinds. So we've, you know, we've seen these institutionals and endowments, um, you know, I, I might say an average allocation to alts is whatever, 25, 30%, you know, somewhere in that, you know, range 20, 25, 30%. And a lot of them are there, right? So they're just, as they, as they age out of a particular investment, they're going to place capital in another investment to, you know, stay even with that allocation. So is, is that, is the tailwind from institutionals? I mean, is that kind of phasing out, would you say? I think a little bit, and there's this whole numerator denominator phenomenon right now, where the denominator, you know, has dropped so much with public equities and bonds, and mm-hmm. you know the the nav of the private asset funds, those pensions and endowments hold, hasn't gone down as much, and and so even their allocations at the pension and endowment foundation space, it's a little bit yeah. out of whack right now. Where they, it's funny because in the, the last five years they were allocating so much to private equity. Because they were they were catching up like every year they were right. underweight. Every year they were underweight because the equity public equity markets were just booming. Well, suddenly it's just been turned on its head in the last nine twelve months. And so, but you have none of that, really none of it, with the private client community. I mean, the mm-hmm. the Economist article that you mentioned referenced that you know the the private client world is allocated less than five percent, and that that is right. It's somewhere between you know three and four percent. When you include the entirety of the private client world, you know, once you get into the high net worth segment, mm-hmm. it's much, much north of that. In fact, in many cases, it looks like pension and endowment allocations. But that's where the tailwind exists, because as the advisors who are managing traditionally 60-40-ish types of portfolios, if they tilt to 50-30-20, um, you know, you're talking about a massive amount of wealth that can transition into alternatives and it's not just private equity again it's real estate and it's credit and you know it's it's a super trend that um it's you know again it's pretty phenomenal to 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 be able to watch that you know over the next decade how that plays out yeah i do think the rebalancing question that one is interesting to me because the fact that these are you know mostly illiquid products in the alternative investment space like take private equity real estate i'm like well you know even if you haven't written down that investment it probably did more or less move pretty closely with the public markets or it's going to so i yeah. think that one that one's a little misleading you know do you have any insight into how advisors deal with that well it it's a great question and we look at it all the time i was just looking at some nabs that were published by some of these registered evergreen private equity funds yesterday and some of these funds are producing um, positive results this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, wow, that, that's pretty impressive, yeah. you know, with what's going on in the public equity market. And um, um, but there's a bit of a lag effect with respect to to the holdings there for sure. So you have to be mindful of that mm-hmm. and as you're allocating towards those funds in today's market. Um, and, and we really like a lot of these funds, by the way. But you know, there could be some nav weakness in these funds because they have a lag reporting. And so, you know, one just needs to be really aware of that. Um, but again, the beauty of those is you can allocate to them every month. 
And oh, so yeah. if you're going to leg into a, a private equity position for a client, you know, you don't have to just dump it all in, in one month, you know, you can allocate as you go. With, with the credit and the real estate um, funds, there's um, a little bit more um, transparency in the valuations. There's also an income or cash flow component of those types of offerings. Sure. Um, you know, the, the non-traded REITs and the BDCs, um, you know, they're really great products. They're a great way to allocate into, you know, private credit in, in, instead of just buying high yield bonds or corporate credit or treasuries or munis. Mm -hmm. the, the private credit segment is is really interesting, as is the private real estate market. And there's benefits and enhancements to just traded REITs, you know, public REITs. So, um, you know, it's they're, they're just there's a lot of really good offerings out there. And then it just comes down to educating advisors on which ones they might consider using. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're right. The the performance has been surprisingly good. And, you know, yeah. One interesting thing, you know, we were talking about pain points and how iCapital really has been a, a part of the, you know, industry, um, you know, the movement to remove some of those or reduce those pain points. But I think another factor, um, I had Stacy Chitty from Blue Vault on the podcast a couple sure. episodes back, and we were talking about how some of these products, the non-traded REITs, the BDCs, you know, the 2022 version of those products seems to be fundamentally better a better deal for investors yeah better returns more transparency just yeah. frankly a better value proposition <laughs> than they were 20 years ago um so i think that's well, a really important piece of this it's definitely the case in the non-traded REITs. yeah uh, you know the, the the private credit the bdc product is a little bit newer actually but the the non-traded REIT circa 20 years ago that you referenced, mm -hmm. um, similar strategies that you have today, radically different fee paradigm uh, for clients. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't getting a very good deal, frankly, many years ago. There was huge placement fees and so forth. And the industry went through quite a revolution a number of years ago where that, to, her, um, to the point you just made, um, today's version, the 2022 version of the non-traded REIT is very transparent. It's priced very effectively. Um, it's it's constructed in a way that, you know, any of us should feel very, very comfortable, you know, investing in. Absolutely. So how about the other pain points? I mean, what would you identify as an area where iCapital has really just made this stuff so much easier than it was yeah. 10 years ago? So there, there's different, if you have to look at the kind of the life cycle of investing in alternatives, um, there's the beginning piece around subscribing, um, which was always, you know, traditionally stacks of paper and yellow stickies. Mm -hmm. That That's all been eliminated. And, um, you know, we've helped accelerate that, but there's some others as well. But, you know, once you've allocated to a private equity fund, for instance, it doesn't just, you know, end there. There's capital calls, there's distributions, there's fund updates, um, there's extensions, there's um, there's a lot that goes on during the life of that fund and being able to automate the flows of that information and importantly, being able to work with the financial advisor so that he or she's staff can know where to find the information in a seamless digital way mm -hmm. um, is really what I think certainly our company has focused on. It's that entire 
life cycle. And so for clients that come to us, again, we, we just work with financial advisors, but we try to deliver a full end-to-end solution. It's not just the upfront electronic sub-doc you know, piece, which is really important, sure. but it's, it's that plus everything that comes after that. Um, I think that's what's, that's helped us a lot and what's kind of given um, financial advisors comfort. And, you know, the other thing is like a lot of financial advisors that we work with, you know, you can essentially um, load up your clients, you know, into our infrastructure and you can build portfolios across those clients. You're not having to constantly go back and, and update new client information and so forth. You know, once they're mm-hmm. in there, you can toggle between different types of funds and, you know, there's really great document repositories and things like that. So the, you know, the ecosystem that we provide for financial advisors I think is what's really been kind of the breakthrough, to be honest. Yeah. You know, it's interesting and talking about the ease of use there. So, you know, any sponsor, any issuer could, you know, close an investor, close capital, get the check, but you have to look at that total life cycle and investor experience because if it's a good experience with good communication, you know, they're more likely to come back and invest in the next offering or the next fund. And they want, they want an environment that's familiar to them. And so, um, you know, I think that's what's made a big difference. Um, you know, they, they, especially the RA community, again, they're, they're running fee-based um, advisory portfolios and they, they like this kind of lather, rinse, repeat cycle where there's a familiarity in terms of the documentation, where it's discovered, um, how performance is represented, where they can find the performance. Does it flow through to the custodial account so that everything's represented accurately on client statements? Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's not just about introducing a really interesting fund and making that subscription document process easy. Again, very important, but it doesn't end there. That, that's just where it begins. Sure. Um, right. So, you know, thinking about, you know, given what you said about an advisor being able to log into the platform and there's all these types of funds, you know, interval funds, hedge yep. funds, private credit, private equity. I mean, it seems to me that having that kind of size and reach and breadth is actually really important because if I'm an RIA or even a family office, um, I, I don't want to have to use and interact with 25 platforms, right? even 10 platforms, you know, if I, if I don't have to. So, you know, frankly, I think iCapital's size is, is part of the value that you offer. And I have this press release. It's from February, 2022. And normally, you know, press releases are press releases, but this one had some really interesting data. So it said that over the course of 2021, iCapital grew the client assets uh, that the company services to $108 billion, which was 59% year over year growth. Like that's that's bananas. It's it's rare to see a company that's already, uh, you know, as large as iCapital have that kind of a growth rate in any given year. So that being said, is iCapital the largest alts platform in the world? Yeah, I, I, I can't think of anyone that that um, would come close. Um, and we're probably going to end the year close to $150 billion, you know, in assets that are managed through the iCapital um, platform. And, and you know, we have a thousand employees now as well. And now we've we branched into some new um, investment product segments, um, namely structured investments. Mm-hmm. Um, through a couple of acquisitions that we've done. But, you know, the size, I think, does matter about 
300, 350 of the people that are part of our company are technologists. You know, they're the ones that are writing the code that automates the technology and the operational infrastructure sure. for us. And, um, you know, we have to make sure that, especially for the RAAs that work directly with us, that we always have a robust menu of choices as well. It's one thing for them to come to us and use our technology and load up their client data. But, you know, you have to have good choices and, and refreshed choices and diversification. You know, you don't want to just hang your hat on on large cap, you know, um, um, buyout oriented private equity. You need to have a robust menu of real estate offerings, a robust menu of credit offerings, a robust menu of hedge fund offerings. So, that so do you all in- do you, do you all have a team that's researching and, and vetting it? I mean, it's not like a build it and they will come just working with the largest guys. Are you actually vetting or finding, you know, making sure that your menu is beefed up, so yes. to speak? Okay. Yes. I've got a team of about 20 um, due diligence and research analysts, and they are constantly working, you know, with our user base and introducing new ideas, soliciting feedback, um, publishing lots of research around different client segments, sharing with the advisor community where they see trends, um, you know, the types of things that we like right now. And that all informs ultimately the managers that will originate and put onto our platform. Um, and so it's it's a very it's a very big team. Um, um, they're very prolific with their research content, mm-hmm. and um, they're regularly in the field, you know, getting intera- interacting with financial advisors. Um, that's been critically important to us. And I think also having that in house, you know, you can outsource research. Um, there's lots of great research firms out there, sure. but just having it in house, I think, has made frankly, our service model that much better, you know, where where advisors regularly call and they want to talk to a subject matter expert. And, Mm. you know, that just happens in a very seamless way. That's interesting. Well, on that note, I think if you look at the alternative space, especially the past couple of years, we've seen these inflows into literally every segment. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but private credit hedge funds, non-traded REITs, BDCs, interval funds, private equity, private real estate. its It really has been a rising tide that lifts all boats. Yeah. I mean, at least yeah. from what I've seen, from all the data that I've seen. Um, do, do you think this is going to continue that just the, the, you know, the tailwinds for alts in general are going to lift all these product segments? Or, you know, are, are there a couple that you think really, um, you know, are, are going to punch above their weight, I guess, in the next couple of years? Um, I, I think there are, and I actually, interestingly, I think it's private equity, and I'll explain why. The, the private credit and the private real estate segments are the ones that grew the fastest. And those were kind of like phenomenons in and of themselves in a very low interest rate environment. <clears throat> and so you had these kind of new asset classes that um, private clients traditionally did not have access to. Um, plenty of options at the corporate bond market, high yield bond market, muni bond market. Mm-hmm. Very, very few options in the uh, in the private lending or private credit space. Same on the real estate side. Good public REITs, not a lot going on in terms of um, you know core and core plus and even value add real estate for the traditional private client. Those two segments, Andy, were the ones that grew the fastest. It wasn't private equity. Private equity, we think, is the next um, category that's going to have the most growth. 
Um, and it's partially due to some new innovations, again, in the chassis, in the way that private equity is delivered. And a lot of it will be emphasized around these evergreen private equity offerings. And there's some new funds that are being rolled out in addition to, I don't know, there's like 12 or 15 registered private equity funds right now that are getting good traction. Um, but there's some new versions even on the back of those that I think are going to help popularize and drive more attention towards the private equity piece of the alternative investments segment. Interesting. And what kind of, you know, what are the major strategies, I guess, that that you see with, with those kind of private equity funds? I mean, obviously we've seen the trend where a lot of high growth private companies are just able to take more and more private capital and grow to just a tremendous size without having to IPO. So that was an opportunity for larger yeah private equity funds. Is it that kind of a strategy? Or are we looking at, you know, leverage buyouts? I mean, so well, it's, yeah, they're, they're going to be, they're broad based. And so a lot of the, um, a lot of the existing registered private equity funds, they started by buying other funds, mm -hmm. uh, you know, flagship funds by some of the largest private equity firms out there. And then once you get into that um, uh, investment process, then one can get access to um, directs and co-invests that come out of those funds. And the pricing okay. and the fees for those can be cheaper, much cheaper than just buying primary funds. And all that flows through to the benefit of the individual investor. So more and more, you're going to see, you know, directs and co-invests populating um, the, the majority of the assets in these, in these newer registered evergreen funds versus those funds just buying primary funds from the big private equity uh, managers out there. And so it's it's a it's actually a better deal for investors. It, it's more transparent. The fee paradigm is much more attractive. Um, the reporting... So they've sort of, sorry to interrupt, but the, these funds have sort of planted seeds with investments. And, and then now as the companies grow that they've invested in, they're just going to participate on subsequent yes. rounds, but on yes. enhanced terms. That's exactly right. And you're seeing that if you look at, you know, not only the existing ones that are out there, but some of the newer ones that are being launched, um, you're seeing kind of the, the the constituent holdings change where it used to be flagship fund 10 by, you know, world-class private equity manager. Now it's SPV 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, which are the individual companies. And the fees wow. for those are a little bit different than the fees for the primary. And so, again, it's a better deal for investors. Um it almost sounds like a late stage uh, venture capital type investing. Yeah, well, it's, some of it is, but some of it is still, you know, large cap buyouts. You know, if manager okay. X, you know, does a huge buyout of, a, of an industrial company, that's an established company. But these funds are getting better terms by participating in that deal yeah. versus participating in the, uh, the, the upper level fund. Got it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, back to this press release. I, it, you're probably like, why are you citing this press release? Well, it had good data in it. Um, I thought this was interesting that uh, it quoted $24 billion uh, in international yeah. assets. And I thought that was extremely interesting. I mean, so, you know, as an LP, and we talk to a lot of family office executives and RAAs, and you know they're mainly dealing with very high net worth, ultra high net worth type investors. And I'm always kind of preaching that a, a big advantage to alternatives is not only the portfolio diversification and the enhanced returns, but the tax benefits 
um, you know, different products like DSTs and anything, you know, 1031, but qualified yep. opportunity funds, obviously in real estate, there's all sorts of tax breaks. So I thought this was interesting. You know, to me, if I'm a foreign investor, uh, I guess, depending on where I'm a citizen or, or where where I live, I'm probably not getting some of the tax benefits. So are, are, are international non-US investors who are investing in, in on the iCapital platform, are they investing in US-based funds? Are they investing no. in... Okay. It's really offshore vehicles. It's Cayman. It's uh, Luxembourg. We have a big Luxembourg platform, fund issuance platform at iCapital. Okay. So there's a different, you know, again, kind of a different legal chassis that those dollars are typically coming into. They're typically not coming into like the Delaware... They're not, you know, Delaware Limited Partners, for instance. Sure. Um, but that, that I, I'd say about, you know, roughly about 25%, 20, 20 to 25% of our assets right now are from non-U.S. individuals represented by offshore financial advisors. And these mm -hmm. are financial advisors in Asia, in, um, in, in, the, in the Middle East, of course, in Europe, and increasingly now more and more in Latin America. And so they're typically buying into either Cayman vehicles or in some cases, Luxembourg vehicles. Uh, but that's an exciting growth space. And we work with both managers that offer non-US content. So it could be a European growth strategy or an Asian okay. buyout strategy. But oftentimes it's you know US funds that are doing you know US growth equity or US buyout or US credit or US real estate, but they're working with us to wrap that fund, that vehicle in a Lux ah. chassis or in a Cayman chassis so that we can sell it into Singapore, for instance. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it it seems like you all are, are on the forefront of this, but really the entire industry has just made so many advances with wrappers, right? It's like the underlying assets haven't changed that much, but just the wrappers are better. They're easier. Uh, it's funny. It's it's product development. And I mean, you have to have good content, make no mistake. Like people aren't going to allocate and believe in the alternative story if, if they don't see the benefits of a return stream to their 60-40. But the, the wrapper matters like immensely. Mm -hmm. And there's constant product development, ways to make those wrappers more efficient, ways to make those wrappers and those funds more easily disseminated in different jurisdictions. You know, and it gets really complicated outside of the U.S. I mean, even if you look at Europe, you can't just say, OK, Europe is one regime. It's not. The U.K. is a very different regime than the EU. And what goes on in Switzerland, there's there's exceptions there, et cetera. And so each of those generally has to have its own its own wrapper in order to reach the widest audience as possible. Interesting. OK, so, you know, as the, you know, the new tailwind, I guess, that, that we all think, at least in the alternatives industry, is you know these retail investors starting to shift to a larger allocation to alt, and we're we're seeing that already. Do you think that's mostly you know very high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals, or is that trickling down to the you know quote unquote everyday accredited investor who might have less than five million in in assets? It's uh, the 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 accredited space is where the momentum is right now. You know, if you just look at the QP market in the United States, there's I should know the answer to this. Three, three to five million QP households in the United States. There's, you know, close to 20 million accredited investor households in the United States. And that uh, cohort 
has generally never had access to alternative investments because they didn't, there wasn't a product set. There wasn't a chassis, you know, right. that was delivering that in. And that's where the product development is occurring. And that's where um, the, the fastest growing segment for sure. And that's frankly where so many um, fund managers, GPs are laser focused on right now, you know, as are we and others, because there's a huge opportunity, you know, to, to really drive that adoption. And that's what's that, you know, that three to 5% alternatives allocation that the economist referenced, mm-hmm. that, that's that cohort, you know, they, they just haven't moved up yet. Like the QP segment, the QP segment adopted alternatives 10, 20 years ago, longer, and they have higher allocations, but it's a smaller population pool, much smaller population pool. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess if you're looking at total assets, then that, you know, that accredited segment, you know, in total investable assets, this is a huge huge amount of assets. Let's talk about education for a minute. So, um, you know, our audience at AltsDB, you know, we're talking with RAs and family office executives who quote unquote get it, right? Like they wouldn't be listening to this podcast if they right. weren't already kind of invested into alternatives, but it's it's still really surprising how many advisors um you know, they just, I guess they don't have the time necessarily, or, or maybe their clients aren't asking for it. You know, that would make sense as well. But I, I know that iCapital created Alt's Edge for advisors to earn CE credits. There's yeah. even a, a certification, I think, in, in Alt. So I guess to, to <clears throat> use a baseball analogy, if individual investors were in like the second inning, maybe of, of awareness, uh, or maybe the third inning, where are financial advisors? Are, are they in the fourth or fifth inning of education? Yeah, they're, they're in the fourth or the fifth inning. And I, I think that most individual investors are in the first or second at best. Okay. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is so many individual investors, particularly those that have their accounts with RIAs, they're not asking for alternatives. They're not going to ask for alternatives. Hmm. It's the financial advisor that needs to kind of shift them in that direction, just showing them the benefits of a shift in asset allocation. And so it's the financial advisor that we at least focus on primarily in terms of education. And we have lots of education materials, including Alt's Edge. You know, it's an accreditation program that we designed with Kaya. And, you know, it's it's fantastic. There's a lot of great content. But to be honest, it's also, it's not, it's not like the um the silver bullet. It's not the secret sauce. It's you, you have to find and understand how and where RIAs consume research and education. And you mentioned it a second ago, Andy, like a lot of them just don't have the time. And so mm-hmm. you, we've designed our education program around, you know, different types of, of ways to deliver that. And oftentimes it's short form videos. It's a five minute segment on what a BDC is. Sure. Now we've got a, hour-long accreditation BDC segment, um, and it's fantastic. And you get CE credits, which a lot yep. of folks need. But yeah. let's face it, there's just not a lot of people that are going to drop everything and take a BDC one-hour segment. But sure. you can actually pack a pretty strong punch in a five-minute video tutorial that gives them the basic understanding. And then we can talk to them, and we can show them different options and different features and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, I think it's one of those. It's a very human thing, I guess, to admit. I don't know what that is, but in in our industry, in the wealth management industry, there are so many new products um, 
you're not an idiot if you don't know what tender offers are or yeah. you don't understand the nuances of an interval fund. You know, it's okay to seek out that content. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there there's lots of nuances. And I think that's why, you know, having a trusted partner again, where there's other firms like ours that offer these capabilities and everyone, you know, is very focused on education, diversification of menu, service and so forth. But you know, we have a lot of heft and it's not an advertisement for iCapital, but it matters. You know, we can really surround advisors with lots and lots of resources to help this journey and this adoption process go a little bit more smoothly. Absolutely. Um, Steve, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. You've been very transparent, you know, about iCapital. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that you're investing so much in just really removing those pain points and, you know, thinking long-term, making the life cycle of the investment, you know, a better experience, making the user experience better. I just, I really believe that's going to be the thing that's going to be the glue that, you know, makes that larger allocation to alts permanent. Yeah. Well, we, we agree. And frankly, that was the thesis behind the creation of our company almost 10 years ago. It's hard to believe we've been around 10 years, but um, I think it's paying off and, there's some super trends that we're delighted to be kind of in the middle of and just being the connective tissue, if you will, mm-hmm. between the GPs on the left and, and the um, and the wealth management LPs on the right, I think has really um, been a good strategy for us. And it's a, it's a good spot to be in. Awesome. So for the RIAs or family offices listening, if they're not already using the iCapital platform, where can they go to learn more about it? Yeah, well, you can go to iCapitalNetwork.com um, and uh, call me directly if you'd like. I'd love to have a conversation and and talk about, um, and we have we have representatives all over the country, of course, and um, they do a great consultative job. They're not traditional salespeople. They really understand the RIA practice, the family office practice, and, um, you know, they lead with technology and the investment content is there. But leading with technology to make the process easier, we have found to be the most important part of the equation. Absolutely. I love that. So for our viewers and listeners, we'll be sure to link to the Economist article that we referenced, the press release, all the resources we mentioned. I'll be sure to include those in the show notes that you can access anytime at altsdb.com slash podcast. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was a real pleasure. This flew right by, Andy. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Thanks. it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.